can see. But then all of a sudden we began to see this external opposition to the church. The church, because of what they believe and what they proclaim, they are now being persecuted. Because of what they believe in. And, and what they proclaim. And, and, and the Sanhedrin Council tells specifically Peter and John, they, they tell them, whatever you do, don't preach, speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter, y'all know Peter, that's my boy. Peter says, he, he stands flat-footed. He says, whether it's right to obey you or to obey God, you be the judge. But we cannot help but speak of the things which we have heard and what we have seen. Oh, every now and then, church, you ought to get a case of the can't help us. You ought to say, I can't help but clap my hands. I can't help but wave my hands. I can't help but declare of what I have seen and what I've heard. And don't judge my worship. Don't judge my praise because you don't know what I've been through. You don't know my story. Woo I feel like preaching here today. Y'all have let me preach for a while, so I feel like preaching. And so, and so now the church is facing this external opposition in the form of persecution. But then it, the, the, it, the threat to the church, to its existence and to its viability, it moves from being external to being internal. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. We, we see a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira's lie about what they were bringing to the feet of the apostles. And the Bible says that they were not just lying to the apostles, but they were lying to the Holy Spirit about what they brought. And God judged them immediately, and they died under the spot. But we see this internal threat continuing in Acts chapter 6, because now there's this murmuring and complaining because the Grecian widows, the Greek-speaking widows, were being neglected at the daily distribution at the table. And so they're saying, no, y'all favoring the Hebrew widows and us Greek-speaking widows, we're being neglected. And this, and only you're going to see, at least in the book of Acts, the apostles drop everything they do on one primary occasion. When the unity of the church is being threatened. Whenever the church is, is starting to be divided, they say, okay, we're going to stop everything we're doing. We're going to get our house in order. And so they said, in order so, so that the Christian widows uh, 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 are not being neglected at the table, we're going to get some servants, some diaconists, the deacons. And they're going to serve the tables because if we did this, as apostles, as the leaders of the church, we will be neglecting our primary ministry, which is prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so we're going to set up this leadership development situation where we're going to have deacons who are going to come and help, and so now all we have, we can focus on what God has gifted and called us to do. And so they deal with this issue that is a threat to the church. Our biggest threat, friends, is us being divided. We cannot let the culture divide us. Amen. Oh, I'm in this house. Amen. So then, Acts chapter 7, one of those deacons who was, two of those deacons we're about to see, one was Stephen. Stephen preached flat-footed, and he just said, y'all killed Jesus. 
Y'all did it. But God raised them from the dead. And so they like what Stephen was saying. So they stoned Stephen to death. Because of what he was preaching and proclaiming. And so now, the, the end of chapter 7 says, the beginning of chapter 8, so they were being persecuted, and, 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 the, and the people, while they were stoning Stephen, they laid their coats down at the feet of some man named Saul. He'll be important here in a couple of weeks when we get to Acts chapter 9. And so they laid their feet, and, and, and the text says that Saul was persecuting the church. I'm getting a little ringy, just a little bit. And, and he was going from house to house, persecuting the Christians. One of those deacons from Acts chapter 6, one of them was Stephen. There was another guy by the name of Philip. And that's where we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 8. That's my introduction for y'all this morning. So we'll turn to Acts chapter 8, and that's where we will pick up. This, this is a major movement in the book of Acts. When you read the Bible, remember that the Bible is literature. And these guys are doing something. They are authors, and so they are actually doing something as they write these books. And so the, some people have said that you can divide the book of Acts just based on geography. Acts chapter 1 through 7 is Jerusalem Judea based. Acts chapter 8, we're going to see, is Samaria. You get to Acts chapter 10, now you're going to have the gospel going to the Gentiles, the uttermost parts of the world. So some say a basic division of the book is just based on geography. And so if we were to go based off that, Acts chapter 8 now deals with Samaria. So Acts chapter 8, we're going to read verses 4 through 25, and that's where we were here from God this morning. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. As is our custom here at the British Church, we stand in honor and reverence of God's holy word. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 4, and we'll go through 25. If you need a, a physical copy of the Bible, we do have some. Or we should have some on the back table at a hospitality table. Uh, if you need a, a physical copy of God's Word for you to own, that's our gift to you. Take it. it you, we want you to have it. Uh, there's a, we, they are saying that we are now living in the post-truth era. And in fact, I think that was the word of the year. Uh, was post-truth. Well, as believers, we don't live in a post-truth era. We, we, we have the truth. As God's word written. The Bible says you shall know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And so there's power in the word of God. And so if you need one of those. You please, please take a physical copy. We'll also have it on the screen. Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Here's what thus said the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered. Went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaim to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many 
who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But, verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previous, previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, the man, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given to the laying, uh, laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The church scattered. The church scattered. In Acts 8, 4 through 8, the first thing I want us to look at as we look at Acts chapter 8 is the ministry of the scattered. The ministry of the scattered. And as we look at the ministry of the scattered, I want you to see closely with me at the identity of those who are scattered. The identity of those who are scattered. Look at 8, chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Here's what it says. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Notice the subject of this verse. Those. Those who are those. Those who have been facing persecution for their faith had now been scattered. They, they were dispersed now. Those. 
The, these are ordinary followers of Christ. They are ordinary believers engaging in extraordinary witnessing about Jesus Christ. Notice, friends, it's, it's not the those in verse 4 don't, don't refer to the apostles. They're just regular old people like you and I. It's the those in verse 4 it's not the spiritual elite. It's, it's not the seminary trained. It, it's not those that went to Bible college. It, it, it's not those who had the specific spiritual gift of evangelism. It was just ordinary people like you and I preaching the word. And, and so I wonder, what was it that made this group of scattered people so effective in their witness. And I think Acts tells us as a whole that what set these people apart for this ministry was nothing but the person of the Holy Spirit. Friends, too many of us feel like, like we don't have the proper training or the proper gifting to share the gospel. And I tell you that these things, that they are helpful. But, but the problem with us is oftentimes we want to accomplish supernatural work with natural methods. And church, that won't work. Jesus himself has given us the supernatural power in the person of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and this is not in this text, but by, by parentheses, let me tell you, I'm intentional when I say the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not just some power, but he's a person. He, he has intellect, emotion, and will. He, he has emotion. He, he can be grieved. He, he, he is a person just like God the Father is a person and God the Son is a person so the Holy Spirit is a person and church if you want to be effective in your work for Jesus Christ all you need to be is spirit filled give me some folks full of the Holy Spirit and give me some seminary trained people I'll take folks full of the Holy Spirit every time and watch them turn this city upside down because that's how much power there is. Where I came from, we call them the Holy Ghost. Oh, it, it was the Holy Ghost that, that saved me. It was the Holy Ghost that changed me. It was the Holy Ghost that set me free. And all I want is a touch for the Holy Ghost still. It was the Holy Ghost that set these people apart. That's the only prerequisite, friends, for sharing the gospel. So we see a group of ordinary Christians just sharing the gospel and bringing joy to the city. But I don't want just you to see in verse 4 the identity of the scattered, but I want you also to look with me at the activity of the scattered. Look with me also at the activity of the, the scattered. What, what exactly did this scattered group of people do? The text says that they were preaching the word. Now, y'all tripping on me. Y'all like, wait a minute, I ain't preaching right now. I don't want something about preaching. <laughs> the word for preaching here in the Greek is euangelizo. E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-Z-O. Euangelizo. It means to bring good news. 
It's the term that's used for proclaiming the gospel. The, the, this Greek term, evangelizo, is what we get our term evangelize. The, 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 they were simply evangelizing the lost. They, they were proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And church, this is the ministry of the scattered. Every Sunday, like now, we gather here as a church corporately to worship God, to hear the word of God, to encourage the people of God, all empowered by the spirit of God. However, we are not meant to just be a people that gather. The, the gathering equips us for the scattering. The scattering church is when we leave the gathering and live our lives in our culture. We will spend more time scattered than we will gathered. Because y'all start looking at your watches when you get close to 11 o'clock. We, we will spend more time scattered from here than we will gathered. So it's important for us as believers to know what does my life look like when we scatter? When we are sent from here. You will live more of your Christian life scattered than you will gather. And a lot of times we, 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 we equip people for the gathering, but not the scattering. What does your Christian walk look like when you show up to work tomorrow morning? If you don't take a sick day because it's Super What? Look like when you're at your mock meeting. Well, that's in the church. Y'all, y'all, y'all act like that. What does life look like when the folks at the grocery store move your buggy without asking you? What does life look like when you're just walking down the street? Driving down the street and somebody cuts you off. <laughs> and they're right there. What does it look like? What does life look like away from the church house? Because we all look like we got it together here. But when we scatter and we go back home, where before the gathering, it's not like you just left World War Three. Dealing with your spouse and, and your children. What does life look like when we scatter? And this here in Acts chapter 8, they show us the dark instance. We, we've fallen prey to this false dichotomy that there is this, this division between the sacred and the secular. Between the spiritual and the natural. Church, if you are Holy Ghost filled, everything becomes spiritual for you. But when you're in your cubicle, that's spiritual. Yes, because you have the Holy Ghost. Yes, when you have the football game, the basketball game coming in, that's spiritual. And so, and so what does life look like when we scatter from here? It's crucial, friends, that we understand our role and our responsibilities as we scatter. Every Sunday at the end of service, we have a commission or, or a sending at the end of our service. The commission, it's not an ending, 
but a continuation of your ministry in a different space. Everywhere these disciples went in Acts, they were intentional about living for Christ in both word and deed. And what we need, what the church needs to do, what the church needs to be, is a group of people who live intentionally for the kingdom of God. So, so we see the identity of the scattered. We see the activity of the scattered. Let me also show you an, an example of the scattered. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, he gives us a specific example of this ministry in the person of Philip. Philip, if you remember, was one of the servants chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve tables to the Greek-speaking Jewish widows. And so now Philip is going to get his whole, he's going to get a whole chapter. He becomes a central character here in chapter 8. But what was, what was it that went Philip did? Look at verse 5. And some of y'all are like, he's just on verse 5? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> get comfortable. Y'all be sitting in the Super Bowl. Y'all be sitting in the message. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Friends, the setting here is significant. The setting is a city in Samaria. This is significant for two reasons. Number one, we know that the Jews and the Samaritans had a hostile relationship with one another. To, to the Jews, Samaritans were racial half-breeds. They were, we call them mixed. They, 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 they were biracial, which meant that they were unclean to the Jews. And now, friends, God is using the Jews the same people that said that the Samaritans were unclean. He's using them to bring the gospel to a people that they see as unclean and unworthy. Look, look what's happening. The gospel is breaking down ethnic and racial barriers. And church, just like it did then, so must the power of the gospel bind all believers together in Christ. Be because I am your brother and sister. No, I'm not your sister. Because I am your brother in Christ. I'm going to go back for you. I don't care what you look like. White, black, brown, blue, purple, or yellow. I got your back because what ties us together is Jesus Christ. Not my whiteness, not my blackness, or my brownness, but it's Jesus. And I've told God before, where I'm from, we used to say, look, look here, blood thicker than water. If you got a friend and you got a cousin, you all, I don't care if the cousin is wrong, is wrong. You get your cousin back because blood thicker than water. That's how we grew up. And, and, and y'all, I like that for the church. Blood, the blood of Jesus Christ is what binds.
hearing from my brother. And we got to start loving one another like brothers and sisters in Christ. Even when we disagree. Said, we went to a conference a couple of days. He said, this is how you know racial reconciliation is legitimate. Can my black son marry your white daughter? Oh, y'all acting like that ain't nothing. Yes, it is. When he walked through the door and he says, Pops, I'd like to take your daughter's hand in marriage. That would get somewhere if you, you oh, that, that's my brother, my son, Jesus Christ. That would get somewhere. Now, I don't know why the Holy Spirit is leading me to this. Let me put a parenthesis in this whole circle. It has nothing to do. Let me tell y'all something about We're talking about gathering and scattering. This that we do every Sunday, even in a multi-ethnic context, believe it or not, this is the easy part. y'all think we have when we gather here on Sunday morning. This is easy. But if you really want to talk about true, real, genuine reconciliation, what happens when we scatter? Can we live life together? That was free. The first thing, the first thing we see so the first reason uh, uh, that Philip does this, what am I trying to, oh, by the setting is significant. It's Jews and Samaritans, but secondly, it's significant because we see the gospel advancing and going beyond Jerusalem. What we are seeing here in Acts chapter 8 is the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You remember, Jesus told his disciples, and you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, Samaria, that's where we are now, and the ends of the world. And so, God had to allow them to go through some persecution to get to Samaria. If they had not experienced persecution, then they may have never ministered against Jerusalem. That they may have never left their comfort zone had it not been for persecution. And God here uses their suffering to produce a scattering that will lead to the evangelization of all peoples. Here's what we learned here. That there is a purpose behind their persecution. And let me parenthetically encourage someone here to say this text helps us to realize that there is always purpose behind the pain of a believer. And friends, I want to encourage you to never waste a good trial. God is doing something in you, for you, and through you. It was God who providentially orchestrated the events that led to the persecution, which led to the scattering, which led to the gospel being preached to Samaria. And so the same God that did it then is the same God that sovereignly orchestrated the events of your life. Yeah. Friends, I know it hurts right now. I know you feel like giving up. 
I know it feels like God has not with you. I know it feels like God has forgotten about you. I know it seems like God doesn't care. But God is working whatever you are going through for your good and his glory. Yes. So Philip, he goes down to Samaria and he proclaims to them the cross. The word for proclaim here is different from the term preaching in verse 4. In verse 4, the preaching that the scattered do is evangelizing. That's for all disciples of Christ. The word here for proclaim comes from the Greek word keruso. It means to announce, to, to make known. It refers to the activity typically done by a herald. This, this herald was a spokesman. He, he, the herald spoke on behalf of a higher authority, which made him accountable for the message he proclaimed to this higher authority. Whenever we see this word, this particular word, Caruso, used in scripture, it's it's, it most often refers to someone speaking in an official position. It's used for the ministry of John the Baptist, for Jesus Christ, the apostles, Paul. It refers to one-way communication. What I'm doing right now is Caruso. Proclamation. Now, what we all do when we share the gospel, that's you and Lisa, evangelize. So that's why two different terms are being used here. Philip has an official proclamation that he is announcing. So then what is the content of this proclamation of Philip? Here it is. And he proclaimed to them the cross. The content of this proclamation is none other than Jesus Christ. And friends, what we will see in the book of Acts is this is what multiplies or grows a church. Preaching Christ and Him crucified. Look, look at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord pay attention to what was being said by Philip. They, they paid attention to this message about Jesus Christ. What attracted people to the gospel was Jesus Christ. And, and church, I, I'm just naive enough to believe that he's still attracting people to himself. Matter of fact, Jesus said it like this. He said, if I be lifted up, from the earth. I will draw all men unto me. And so what we need to do here at the British Church is just lift up Jesus. And, and what people more often ask me, how are you going to reach this community? How are you going to reach that community that you are in? And I said, well, here's in a nutshell, I'm going to preach Jesus. And, and they look at me and they're like, what's up? No, 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 you got to have a plan and, and a strategy and a method and you got to have processes and structures. And I said, I'm going to preach Jesus. And Jesus has a way because he, he'll give us his spirit and his spirit knows how to create order out of chaos. I'm going to preach Jesus. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's enough. And I'm just going to tell them, watch me, watch me, watch me. Look at me, look at me. And that's all I want to tell you. That's what we're going to do. If we're going to be a church that 
Jesus and the crowds are attracted. We gotta give away big TVs in order to attract people to church. We gotta do a bunch of raffles. I'm not saying it's wrong with this. We gotta get Eric Church or Chris Tomlin to come and perform on stage. All we need to do is make much of Jesus Christ and watch it because I'm a living witness that Jesus will change your life. I'm looking at some folks right now who are living witnesses that Jesus will change your life. People say you will never change, you will never be anything else, but you don't know the power of my Savior. So there was much joy in that city. Friends, if we want to bring joy to this city, if we want to bring joy to our state, if we want to bring joy to our nation, we must proclaim Christ and then be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to a joyous city. Friends, this is the ministry of the scout. To proclaim, to preach Christ, and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. The question that we must wrestle with as a church, as we look at verse 8, it says, much joy was brought to the city. What we must ask ourselves is, is there much joy in this city because of our presence. Y'all listen to the baby, y'all don't listen to me. We must wrestle with this question. Is there much joy in this city because of our presence? Many churches have gone in and out of this particular building. And I wonder if the community misses them at all. If we leave this building, this community misses us at all. Will there be a God-sized hole because we are no longer here? Is our city any different because of the presence of the church? Not just the first church, but the church. Much joy to the city. I think about something that just happened this week. Uh, there's been some changes in the Underground Cafe. The Underground Cafe meets every Wednesday and they feed the hungry. They say, anybody that's hungry, that don't have food, come eat, we'll feed you. And so the Underground Cafe, <clears throat> under the previous leadership, they asked if we would help. We would partner sometimes with what we said, yeah. And so every quarter, what we were doing was, we were taking paper goods and paper plates, forks, spoons, knives, napkins, well, any kind of paper good we took to them. And so, the underground cafe went under some changes. There were tables missing downstairs, and so we had no idea uh, what was happening. And so we missed the, the last quarter. And so Emily asked me, she said, so do you want me to get the stuff? You know, my favorite friend Tommy was, has gone on to. Well, now he ain't dead, but he was losing. <laughs> so, uh, and so she was asking, I said, you know what, yes. As long as they're ministered down there and we're here, let's do it. And she said, so she went and bought the paper goods. And she delivered them this past Wednesday. And so Doug, who's now running the ministry, he, he, he said to her, oh my gosh, 
I had just run out of everything. And I didn't know what I was going to do for the hunger. He said, I am so glad, Joy. I think about when, when we go, when we go over to, to down to Adams Elementary, you've got this long school day now. And I can tell you as a witness, the biggest thing, the biggest problem with this long school day is our kids are hungry. My kids get home and they, it's a mad dash to the refrigerator. And so the principal said, one way y'all can love us well is if you can help us with some snacks. And so we had the garage sale, we raised some money, and, 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 and then we took, we bought all these snacks, and we took them to Adams Elementary, and you ought to see the response of the administrators, the social workers, when we took that joy to the city. I'm on Twitter, thank you, brother. I'm on social media, and he tweets, uh, he retweets something from State Elementary that says, it's cold outside, but our students are not cold, thanks to the British church. Joy to the city. Give all we bringing joy to the city because of our gospel proclamation and our demonstration of the power of God. All right, I got to get out of here. Point number two. I know I'm going to get this. I don't care. Point number two. The magician is saved. This next section, verses 9 through 13. The next section introduces, introduces us to a magician by the name of Simon. The text says that he was a proud man because he considered himself great. He, he's performing all of this magic. He's got this following, and he considers himself great. And in verse 10, we see the repetition of the independent clause from the previous section. Here's what it says. They paid attention to him. That parallels verse 6, where Luke said that the crowd paid attention to Philip. Now these, these crowds, that they're paying attention to, to Philip. And, I mean, excuse me, to Simon and his magic. The crowds, they, they are amazed at the magic of Simon. And they, they therefore ascribe to him the power of God. And now they are calling him great. And, and they believe that Simon has supernatural powers. Like some of you think your fortune cookies. And horoscopes have supernatural powers. Magic has their attention until verse 12. In verse 12, Philip shows up on the scene and he preaches the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says as a result, those in the crowd believed. And then they were immediately baptized. Matter of fact, the gospel was so powerful that even this magician believes and is baptized. Look, look, look at what happens here. Simon, who once amazed the crowd, is now amazed himself by the gospel and the power of God. Simon, who considered himself great, now sees works done by someone who is great. Church, this section of our text shows us that there is no power like the power of God. 
that there is no one like our God. No one can match or supersede the power of God. Not magic, nothing. No one can supersede God's power. And friends, there ought to be good news to somebody in here today. Because that means that if nobody can match or supersede the power of God, that means no dictator, no prime minister, no king, no queen, no president, no congressman can match or supersede the power of God. All right, here I come. I'm coming to your road for your feedback. No, no employer, no manager, no supervisor, no landlord, no bank, no devil in hell can match or supersede the power of God. So I tell you, whatever it is you're struggling with, put it in God's hands and watch Him work it out. This section also teaches us that Christianity. This is crucial. Christianity has nothing to do with magic. Why do I bring this up? Because many atheists say that those of us who believe in the God of the Bible put, our, put a false hope in some magic guy in the sky. But our text today teaches us that we don't believe in some magic guy in the sky. He's greater than magic. Matter of fact, he's the creator of the entire universe. And because he's the, the creator of the universe, he can overall override the laws of nature at any moment and do what no other power can do. Matter of fact, what that means is that what he does, it's not magic, it's a miracle. Yes, yes, yes. I, I don't believe in this on next day. I, I believe in the God who created everything. Yes. Who, who can speak and things happen. Yeah. All right. Y'all getting weary on me, so let me move to point number three. Look with me finally at the misunderstanding of the Spirit. That's the last section here. The misunderstanding. So the text moves on by saying that Peter and John are sent from Jerusalem down to Samaria and affirm, they affirm the faith of the Samaritans. They, they came to pray that these new believers would receive the Holy Spirit. They had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hold on. Wait a minute. We have a theological problem, friends. Because I've told you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens the moment one trusts in Jesus Christ. I've told you before that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a second work of grace. It, it, it's not a second blessing, but it is. it happens simultaneously when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And this passage, this biblical, inspired, inerrant, authoritative passage seems to contradict that teaching. So what's happening here? What do we do with these narratives in the book of Acts? Let me posit a couple of things. We, we must remember what's going on. The gospel is expanding. It's moved beyond the borders of Jerusalem, the home of the Jews, and it's now being proclaimed and believed in Samaria. And so what I believe is happening here is God is being very intentional and situational. 
He is showing that the faith of the Samaritans is legitimate and therefore they are a part of this new community called the church. God is intentionally uniting the Samaritan church with the Jerusalem church and he wants to show that you are now one united body. I'm not going to allow this perpetuation of the division between the two groups, but realize that it's not in your Jewishness or your Samaritanness, but it's in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so God is intentionally, and it's like when you teach your, when your kids are learning to walk. It's real awkward, you know, in life. And so God is being very intentional by showing this is what's happening here. And so now, you two are one new man, one new body, one church. Now, secondly, we must remember something that Jesus told Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Okay? Stay with me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. You remember Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Some say John, some say Elijah, some say some prophet. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? He poses this question to his own disciples. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, my boy Peter, I can count on him every time. He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus responds to Peter. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, at the time we all call him Simon, he says, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here it is. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, here's what I'm holding you. What we see here in Acts chapter 8 is Peter exercising the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, what do keys do? They, they, thank you. You have to appreciate that. They give access. When, when somebody had the keys from the king, that also expressed that they had authority. And so, Peter now, because he's been given the keys of the kingdom, Peter has the ability to confirm that the faith of a person or a group of people is genuine, and he opens the door to the kingdom of heaven for them. So notice, though, some, some of you are struggling with you said, Lord. So Peter exercises the keys of the kingdom. He, he's saying, yes, their faith is real. And it took someone from Jerusalem to say this about a people group that they saw as unclean. And so Peter is exercising the keys of the kingdom by saying, yes, their faith is real. Matter of fact, I know it's real because now they have the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may be struggling with this because it seems like Peter has the ability to save and not save people. People. Remember what Jesus said. He said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Here's, here's the, the, the better translation of that. Whatever Jesus says to Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Very different. So all Peter is doing is Peter is declaring on earth what has already previously been decreed in heaven. So Peter exercises the keys of, of the kingdom when he says on earth, oh yeah, 
They really have, they really are believing. This has already been decreed in heaven that they would hear the gospel and that they would respond by faith to the gospel. And by extension, and with it, the church now has the authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom. The church should be the ones to affirm a believer's faith. This, friends, is why our membership process is so thorough. This is why we interview every person that's becoming a member of our church. As, as shepherds, as, as elders, we are shepherds. And our responsibility is to guard the sheep gate. Because there's sheep, sheep, excuse me, there's sheep and there's wolves. And we want to protect our body. And so we are exercising the keys of the kingdom when we say to you, this person is now a member of the British church, we are saying that we affirm that their faith is genuine and they are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So finally, church, in order to really understand this, this uh, to understand what's happening here, when the Holy Spirit comes uh, separate from the moment they have faith, because we have to remember that the book of Acts, it's a book of transition. Therefore, we have a lot of exceptions. And the pattern in our text of receiving the Holy Spirit post-faith is in an exception and not the norm. To understand the norm, we have to consider the entire teaching of the New Testament. You can't just look at one book, one passage. You have to see how is this taught throughout all of the Bible, throughout all of the New Testament. And the New Testament books after Acts teaches that the Holy Spirit is received the moment one is converted. That's what's normative. And this is where we get in trouble. And this is why we have so many different beliefs and interpretations and denominations and churches is because we take something in the book of Acts and we say, all right, it says right in the book of Acts, so that's now our theology. That's what we believe. And, and you, you gotta be careful when you take theology or doctrine from a transitional book. It's still inerrant and it's still authoritative and it's still inspired. Don't hear me say that. But God is doing things intentionally in, a, in an intentional way in the book of Acts. So let's finish this thing. The misunderstanding of the Spirit comes when Simon, he sees that the Spirit is given through laying on his hands. And Simon says, I got some money. I want to buy this power to lay hands on people so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. Simon thinks the Holy Spirit is for sale. And Peter responds with a strong rebuke. Peter says, your money should carry with you. Your heart is not right before God because you think you can just buy the Holy Spirit. Peter tells him, you need to repent and pray for forgiveness. And this text helps us to understand, church, that the Holy Spirit is not an item to be bought, but a gift to be received. The Holy Spirit is the free gift of God to those who believe that his son died for the sin of the world, was buried, rose on the third day, and ascended, 
to his Father in heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is for believers, for disciples, for Christians. The Holy Spirit cannot be bought, sold, or traded. It is a free gift of God. Now you may be here today and you want this power of the Holy Spirit. The only way you can have it is by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. You, you, you must come to this strong reality that you are a sinner who deserves eternal separation from God in hell. People get offended a lot of times by some of the stuff they hear in church, but no, no one ever sends me uh, uh, an email saying, I'm offended that you call me a sinner. <laughs> the gospel is, if you really think about it, it's pretty offensive. You are a sinner. And what you deserve is hell. Oh, but there's good news, church. I'm so glad that the story doesn't end there. Oh, that'd be a very depressing message. The good news is that God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die our death, to die in our place, to pay a penalty that he didn't owe because we owe a penalty that we could not pay. Jesus died for the sin of the world. And if you would trust in him and him alone, nothing else, nobody else, Jesus Christ, you will receive eternal life. And at the moment you believe, you become a believer, you receive the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives you the power to change. I told you a couple of weeks ago, the struggle with me of us is that we want to change by just changing our behavior, by changing our habits. That only brings about temporary change that's absent. The Holy Spirit is what gives you the power to experience a lasting change. It's that whole thing about, well, I'll come to church when I get myself together. Oh, man, that is so depressing. Because you can't get yourself together. If you could, you'd be together by now. You enjoy seeing too much to get yourself together. And so you need another power outside of yourself. That power is the Holy Spirit. Jesus offers this. Come as you are. He wasn't talking about just your dress code. Come as you are. Liar. Cheater. Thief. Backbiter. Hater. Come as you are. And I will make you a brand new person. 